Should Christians consider Islam a serious challenge to Christianity? Or should Islam just be viewed as another road to the same God? Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. We have a very special treat in store for you over the next few weeks. We're going to present excerpts from the presentations that were made at our 2011 Bible Conference, the theme of which was Christianity Under Attack. We had five guest speakers in addition to myself. Those speakers and their topics were Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries who spoke on the challenge of Islam, Frank Wright, President of the National Religious Broadcasters, who spoke on the challenge of government. James Walker of Watchman Fellowship, who spoke on the challenge of apostasy. John Morris of the Institute for Creation Research, his topic was the challenge of evolution. And Ron Rhodes, the founder and director of a ministry called Reasoning from Scriptures, he spoke on the challenge of humanism. I personally wrapped up the conference with a presentation entitled, The Promise of Victory. And now, here is Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries speaking on the challenge of Islam. What I want to try to do is challenge you to think about this issue of Islam, because it is one of the great challenges of the 21st century. Wouldn't you agree? And I'm going to do my best to, if you've not really studied this too much, give you enough basic information so that you at the end have at least a basic understanding of what Islam is all about and what the challenge is and how to respond to it. But I also recognize that some of you have actually studied this and have some background, and I'll try to drop in at least enough information so that even if you're an expert in this, maybe you'll learn a few things that are going to be really, I think, relevant. Now, as I do this, let me also mention that you've probably noticed by now that I talk a little faster than Dr. Reagan. Some people have actually um, measured me at 180 words a minute with gusts over 250. So, you know, uh, that can sometimes come very quickly. So at the end, let me just say, I'm going to send you to a website in case you want to actually have this information and use it for yourself. Perhaps you'd like to steal some of this, sanctified of course, but steal some of this and use this in your Sunday school class. I'll make it available to you and also mention some of the books and resources that we're going to cover. But we're going to try in a short amount of time to give you a little bit of an overview on this subject of Islam. But to do that, let's back up a few years and to talk about a book that I think really sets in context why it is important for us to understand this issue. Samuel Huntington wrote a book back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. First he wrote an article that appeared in Foreign Affairs. Later it came in to be a book called The Clash of Civilization. He was a professor at Harvard University. I've shared a podium with him before. And he, at the time when the Berlin Wall was falling, at the time when there was no longer a f actual Soviet Union, was actually saying that many people were making false predictions. 
If you remember, some of you are old enough to remember back then, there were people writing books on the end of history. And you know that all the conflict is going to go away. Uh, there's no longer a Soviet Union. So this conflict between the West and communism will end. Didn't quite work out. But he actually predicted that in the 21st century, he believed that there would be a clash of three major civilizations. The first is what he called Western universalism. And that's the West what we would describe as the West and Western culture, rule of law, constitutional government, one person, one vote, uh, all the kinds of things that we take for granted in the West. The second he referred to as Chinese assertion. I don't want to forget more than a billion Chinese, and so I won't really spend too much time talking about those first two. But the third civilization that he talked about is what he called Muslim militancy. Now, by that, he didn't mean that all Muslims were militant. He didn't mean that all Muslim countries were militant. But he did predict that really one of the great challenges we would face in the 21st century would be a clash between the West and Islam. Was he right? Yes, he was. And I know that as a, at a prophecy conference, there are some that have said that maybe after the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, maybe that destroys radical Islam, and maybe that's the case, and maybe it's not, but the bottom line is that's in the future, and for now, we have to face the threat of radical Islam. By that, I don't mean that all Muslims are radical. I don't mean that all Muslims are terrorists. That is not true. But it is pretty much true that all terrorists are Muslims. And so we have to understand that. But at the same time, I also want to help you understand that many of the Muslims you come into contact with, the ones I run into when I go onto a college campus, they are here perhaps not with any kind of radical intent, although I suspect some are, but many just simply want to come and enjoy the American experience, but they are worshiping a false god. And how do we witness to them? So I want to, at two different tracks, try to talk about how do we talk to our Muslim friends and neighbors and coworkers, but then also spend a little bit of time talking about this very significant threat. For those of you who may have tuned in late, you are watching a presentation by Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries entitled, The Challenge of Islam. Kirby proceeded to present a sweeping overview of the history of Islam, its establishment, and its development. And in the process he outlined the five pillars of the religion, namely, number one, confession of Allah as God and Muhammad as His messenger. Number two, praying five times a day. Number three, giving to the poor. Number four, fasting during the month of Ramadan. And number five, a pilgrimage to Mecca if possible. Mr. Anderson next explained the difference between the Sunnis and the Shiites, the two major divisions within Islam, two groups who are constantly in conflict with each other. And then he focused in on an analysis of the differences between Islam and Christianity. And that is where we're going to pick up with his presentation. I think it would be worthwhile if you had some time for everybody in this room, maybe I'll give it as a homework assignment, although I'm not grading it, to suggest that somewhere along the line it would be good for you to at least read one chapter of the Quran. Now, you don't have to go out and buy a Quran like I have. You can go online and get it, or you can go to a library and read it right there. And I was going to suggest that if you only read just one chapter, just to understand a little bit about Islam, I would suggest you read chapter 9, Surah 9. And the reason for that is, is that, um, first of all, it was one of the last chapters written 
And there is this belief in Islam called abrogation, that later revelation can abrogate or change previous revelation. So you might as well read the end of the book. And I'm sure some of you have read mystery novels where you read the last chapter before you read the first. Well, might as well read the last, and it would give you an idea. But also, I think it would help you understand the idea of jihad. You would run into, in the first 35 verses, four different claims for jihad. Let's take one. This is known as the verse of the sword, Surah 9.5. It says, fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them and beleaguer them and lie and wait for them in every stratagem. This comes from one of the more respected English translations of the Quran. I've looked at many and all of them say something very much like that. Does that give you a little bit of an idea? Now, again, if you look at this and say this is binding on me today, and I need to follow this. Can you see the concerns that you have? Now, many Muslims are like a number of Christians. You know, I've run into people who say, you know, I'm a Christian because, hey, I was born in America and I haven't killed anybody, so I must be a Christian. You know, I go to church once a year, sometimes twice if I really feel motivated, and they don't really know their Bible. You know, a lot of Muslims I've run into in this country don't know their Quran either. Or they contextualize it and say, well, that applied to Muhammad's day, but it doesn't apply to today. But if you take a literal interpretation of that verse, does that concern you? I'm not just loading the gun. Let me give you another one. Surah 929. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his prophet, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are the people of the book, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and find themselves subdued. Okay, lots of things going on here. First of all, it talks about the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians, okay? Now, it also says that, interestingly enough, the people of the book, they may not be treated like infidels, but they have to be treated like second-class citizens. They have to feel themselves subdued. Is it not surprising that even yesterday, on point of view, we spent some time talking about persecution of Christians around the world? And at least two-thirds of our examples came from what? Muslim countries. And they have to pay the jizya, or like a poll tax. And historically, that was something that they were required to do. And you look at the history of Islam and how Muslims, when they took over an area, the way they treated Christians and churches and things of that nature, you have that idea. But ultimately, it gives you a little bit of an idea of the battle of fighting against anyone who is not a Muslim. Now, again, one of the myths you hear is, well, okay, the Quran has some verses about violence. And it has some verses about jihad. Yeah, about a hundred of them. So it's not just a few, but okay, there's about a hundred verses or uh, parts of different surahs that do so. But you know what? Your Bible has some of those too, don't they? Okay, how do we respond to that? Well, let's just take one example. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that here Samuel tells Saul to go and to attack Amalek. Now, who was Amalek? Let me go back and look at Moses. And when the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, they were actually attacked by who? Amalek and the Amalekites, okay? Or Amalekites, depending on how you pronounce it. And it was really the first terrorist organization we kind of run into. And eventually, there is a battle that takes place. And if you remember the battle, as Moses' hand is raised, what happens? The Israelites begin to actually prevail. But eventually he gets tired of holding up his hand and as his hand drops, then the Amalekites begin to prevail. So they try to hold his hand up, but they never really finish the battle. And here now, Israel is strong enough and he says, Saul, finish them off. 
Now, what I think is intriguing is, is that in the next verse it goes on and says, but save the Kenites because they have been good to you. Uh, that particular group over uh, almost in the Jordanian area today. But, you know, they've been good to you, so we will save them. And so no collateral damage. So here you have a direct and specific command to take out the Amalekites, but it's so direct and specific they're not even to affect any other groups around there. It was given in the Old Testament, in an Old Testament theocracy, and again, it was a specific command against this group. Let's go back and look at what we just mentioned a minute ago with the Quran. That is a universally binding command for all individuals at all times. Osama bin Laden, before he was deep-sixed, um, actually in his fatwas quoted from this verse. Zarqawi quotes from these verses and others justify in their jihad based upon that. Can you think of any Christian leader today saying, go out and kill the Amalekites? First of all, there aren't any. But second of all, it's not even used. And so it's very different because in the Old Testament, it's a direct and specific command given in the theocracy for a specific group of individuals. Now, when you go and compare the New Testament to the Quran, you see something even more intriguing. Because what does the New Testament teach? Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbors. In other words, the more literal my interpretation of the New Testament, the more likely I am to be what? Peace-loving. But the more literal I interpret the Quran, the more likely I am to be a jihadist. Do you see the difference? Another answer. One last one, real quickly. Surah 47. When you meet unbelievers, smite their necks, and then when you have made wide slaughter among them, tie fast the bonds, then set them free, either by grace or ransom, till the war lays down its loads. And those who are slain in the way of God, he will not send their works astray. He will guide them and dispose their minds all right, and he will admit them to paradise that he has made known to them. Again, an argument for jihad, but those who are slain in this holy jihad, what happens? They go to what? Paradise. Seventy virgins, supposedly. Boy, are a lot of people that uh, have engaged as martyrs in for a great surprise, aren't they? (laughs) But more importantly, we see that this, again, has become a very compelling argument used for the Martyrs Brigade and others, and it illustrates again the tremendous threat that we face just militarily. Well, let's, if we can, for just a minute, talk about how to deal with the Muslim ideas and what are the differences between Islam and Christianity and how you could witness to maybe your Muslim friends and neighbors and coworkers. The first is I think it is important that you might want to point out the differences between the Bible and the Quran. Because there is sort of a fundamental principle that you learn if you ever take a class in philosophy. It's called the law of non-contradiction. If A is true, the opposite of A cannot be true at the same time in the same way. If the Bible says one thing and the Quran says something completely different from it, they both can't be true. Does that make sense? They both could be false, but they both cannot be true. And that, I think, is very helpful because Muslims very early on after Muhammad began to realize that some of the things he taught were actually contradictory to the Quran. So early on, they came up with the idea that the Bible had been corrupted by Jews and Christians. And, of course, the problem with that, for those of us that do apologetics, is where? I mean, there's no evidence of that. As a matter of fact, there are places where Muhammad actually endorses the Bible, 
And the Bible he endorses in the 6th and 7th century is pretty much the same Bible exactly we have in the 1st century. So where does that actually take place? But I think it's more important to recognize that, again, just from an apologetics point of view, defending the Christian faith, that the Bible is confirmed by history and archaeology. Archaeology, the archaeologist's spade, and the historical tools can show that the Bible is true. By contrast, history can show that the Quran is false. For example, one of the classic ones is, is that the Quran teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. Well, there's pretty easy difference, isn't there? I mean, the, it teaches that actually Jesus did not die on the cross, but an imposter died on the cross. Jesus eventually died, but he's going to return again. They believe in the return of Christ, but they believe he's going to come and destroy all churches, all crosses, all pigs, and eventually die and be buried and, married, uh, and then eventually be buried next to Muhammad. Well, that's a little different than the Bible, isn't it? And so you can see right off the bat, there are differences. They both can't be true. One of them, by definition, has to be false. Another one, uh, the Samaritans tricked the Israelites at the Exodus. That's kind of a problem in terms of just basic interpretation. Alexander the Great was a Muslim who worshipped Allah. And you can go on and on with all sorts of different ones that I think illustrate again that one of the points that I love to use with a Muslim student sometimes is to say, do you not understand that your Quran and our Bible disagree? They both can't be true. Let's now see what history and archaeology say about the truthfulness of the Bible. What does it say about your Quran? Now, I wouldn't say that overseas you get killed doing that, but over here, uh, students uh, sometimes are much more open to it. But I think another way to look at this is to look at the nature and character of God. Have you ever heard anybody say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Have you heard sitting presidents say that? Let's talk about that for just a minute. You know, first of all, Islam denies the Trinity. Anybody here teach a Sunday school class or a pastor? If you do, I want to suggest to you that I think one of the greatest doctrines under attack in the 21st century will be the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Uh, because, first of all, the second largest religion in the world rejects the Trinity. You ever been at your home and hear a knock on the door and you see, as you look out there, two young men in white shirts with bicycles? You know what I'm talking about here? That's one of the fastest growing religious groups in America. Do they deny the Trinity? In a sense, because they say all sorts of people can be gods. Ever had another knock at the door and you look out and you see some people holding watchtower material? Do they deny the Trinity? One of the most aggressive evangelistic groups. Have I made my point? I think it is absolutely essential that every Christian in America and around the world in the 21st century know how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. But here, right off the bat, you can see that we disagree because Allah is supposed to be alone. God in Islam is not to have a partner. And the worship in anybody else but Allah is known as shirk or idolatry. So right off the bat, Muslims would disagree that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Well, let's look at the character of God. Allah is transcendent. He is distant. He is unknowable. Matter of fact, he's unpredictable. He's capricious. Very different than the God of the Bible. God uh, in Islam or Allah reveals his will but not himself. He reveals his will through his prophet Muhammad. He reveals his will through the angel Gabriel. He reveals his will through the Quran, but you cannot know him personally. Is that the God of the Bible? Not exactly. 
Can we call God our Father? The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Can we have a personal relationship with God? Yes, we can. Are we talking about two different individuals here? I think that we are. One of the things I find so interesting is, is that in my book, I document a study that was done, and at that time it was done with about 700 former Muslims who have converted to Christianity. Now it's up to almost 900 former Muslims who have converted to Christianity. And they asked these former Muslims, what caused you to leave Islam and become a Christian? Their number one reason, the love of God. Because if you're a Muslim, you do not have a personal relationship with God. You do not feel the love of God. Matter of fact, you fear Allah. And you are not sure of your salvation. You are not sure that anything will actually merit salvation unless maybe you're killed as a martyr in a jihad or something like that. And so you have this hunger to know God, but there is never a way that it's fulfilled. And so I would suggest to you that when you talk to your Muslim friends... Talk about the love of God. For a Muslim, it seems a bit strange to talk about the love of God, that I can know God personally, but they are in their heart oftentimes desire that. And it is really one of the most effective witnessing tools today. Because they see Allah as master, not father. But we can call God what? Our father. Looking just the difference for a minute, when you have people say, well, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Allah in the uh, Quran as a Unitarian monotheism, you know, in the Bible, Yahweh, Trinitarian monotheism, a master-slave relationship, whereas in uh, Christianity, a father-son or father-daughter relationship. In the Quran, Allah determines all. If you're ever with a Muslim, they'll say a phrase, Allah, when something happens. It means Allah wills. You fall down a flight of stairs, Allah. I'm blessed, Allah. You know, he determines everything, but then ultimately he is the author of both good and evil. Whereas Christianity recognizes that God is sovereign, but he has given us free will and he is the author of good. A couple more real quickly. How about the person and work of Jesus? Well, here again, I think something is very important because the Quran, as I just pointed out, denies that he is the son of God. Uh, they deny the resurrection And so as a result, they say that Jesus will return to establish Islam universally. And so I think it's important, again, to begin to help them understand who Jesus really is. Many Muslims have said that they can actually find Jesus in the Quran. And some Christians have used the Quran to lead Muslims to the Lord. It's a controversial tactic, and I'm not suggesting we always want to do it. But it is interesting that if you just look at the Quran, you learn a lot more about Jesus than most Muslims know. Because in the Quran, it says Jesus was sinless. He was born of a virgin. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. They just don't believe he's the Son of God. Well, that gives you a lot to work with, doesn't it? You know, especially as, uh, as a starting point. Because later on in the Quran, Muhammad is actually told by Allah to confess his sin. So Muhammad is sinful and Jesus is sinless. This has been another tactic that has been very, very used by Christian missionaries in Muslim countries to say, would you not like to know more about this sinless prophet Jesus? And there's a place in the Quran where actually Muslims are encouraged to read the before books. What are the before books? Well, those are the books about Moses and the book about Jesus. They believe that Moses was a prophet, that Jesus was a prophet. And he actually encourages them to read the before books. And they say, would you not like to know more about this sinless prophet named Jesus? 
Here's the Gospel of John. It's been a very effective technique to begin to open the door for them to read the Bible. What about sin and salvation? Well, Muslims really deny the fall. They say Adam and Eve fell, but God forgave them. So they really don't believe in a sin nature the way we do. They, in a sense, believe that you can work out your own salvation. There is an image that is given in the Quran of kind of like a fulcrum or a balance sheet, you know, the good works and the bad works and the hope that my good works will outweigh my bad works and ultimately I will be saved. And so again, this is an incredible evangelistic opportunity, isn't it? You know, I gave that uh, study just a minute ago that was done by a seminary where they looked at 700 former Muslims, now it's 900, who converted to Christianity. What was the number one reason they, can, they changed? The love of God. You know what the number two reason was? Assurance of their salvation. Because a Muslim never knows if he or she is going to be saved. But we can believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ and know that we've been saved. Agree? And so again, that is a very powerful technology, very powerful technique, I should say. And really, when we come to the end, we have to say that the fundamental issue is salvation. The Bible states that it is impossible to be accepted by God on the basis of works. Only by God's grace can we be saved through faith. And really, only if Jesus is divine can he provide a sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world. One of the most significant verses is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You witness to a Muslim friend, it says that we are saved by what? Grace, not by works. And that, I think, is a very powerful way to share the gospel. Again, we have people saying that Christianity and Islam are basically the same. They're as different as they can possibly be. Islam believes in an absolute one of God. Christianity believes in God in three persons. Islam believes that Jesus was a major prophet, but not God. Christianity believes that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Islam believes that he did not die on the cross or raise. Christianity teaches that he rose from the dead. Islam teaches that the Bible is corrupted. Christianity teaches that the Bible is the word of God. Islam believes that humans are good by nature and that they can save themselves. Christianity believes that we are sinful by nature and we're saved by grace. It's about as different as night and day. You have been watching Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries speaking about the challenge of Islam. I think his presentation made it clear that Islam is a false religion that worships a false God and teaches a false plan of salvation, namely salvation through good works. Islam denies the Trinity, it denies the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, and it denies the grace of God. There is no doubt about it, Islam is a religion that is totally incompatible with Christianity. If you would like to get a video copy of Kirby Anderson's entire presentation, you can do so by requesting this album. The album is entitled Christianity under attack. The album contains three DVDs that in turn contain all six of the presentations that were made at our 2011 Bible Conference. Each presentation runs approximately 50 minutes in length, so this album contains 300 minutes of fully illustrated presentations by six different speakers on the following topics. The challenge of Islam, the challenge of government, the challenge of apostasy, the challenge of evolution, the challenge of humanism, and the Promise of Victory. You can get the album for a gift of $25 or more plus the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen and ask for the album by name, Christianity Under Attack. 
Call Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time. You can also request the album through our website at www.lamblion.com. Next week, the Lord willing, we will continue with this series of programs taken from our 2011 Bible Conference. Our featured speaker will be Dr. Frank Wright, the President of the National Religious Broadcasters. He will speak on the challenge of government, and in the process, he will provide you with some valuable insights about how our national government is working overtime these days to marginalize the impact of Christianity on society. Well, I hope you'll be back with us next week. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministry, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.